This episode is brought to you by Odeo Academy. Learn to build the career of your dreams in the fun, fulfilling, and lucrative industry of digital marketing without drowning in student loan debt, compromising your values, or working for peanuts. Learn to build your digital marketing career at odeoacademy.com forward slash JLP and claim $100 off your enrollment entering the code JLP at checkout. Odeo is O-D-E-O. Check it out at odeoacademy.com forward slash JLP and get $100 off with the code JLP. Jewish Money Matters episode 286, Ari Schonbrunn, surviving 9-11, thriving in life. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters, the podcast where Jewish wisdom and spirituality meet your money and your business. Money is a means to serve God in this world with joy, to build a life that leaves an imprint way beyond our time in this world. I want you to discover the secrets to Jewish wealth, to gain practical and spiritual tools to break free from the shackles of financial worry, to design the joyful, rich life that your soul desires. Welcome to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, and I'm so glad you're here. When I realized that I almost lost my life, which meant that my family was going to lose me, I took a good, hard look at my life, and I realized that God plucked me out of a collapsing, burning building and gave me a second chance. And I took that to heart. And I said, you know what? I am going to change. You just heard from survivor of the 9-11 terrorist attack, Ari Schonbrunn. You're listening to Jewish Money Matters. I'm Yael Trush, your host. Welcome to the show. Of the 662 counterfeits Gerald employees on the upper floors in the World Trade Center that day, only three survived. My guest today is one of them. Mr. Sean Brun is a renowned inspirational speaker and the author of Miracles and Fate on 78. 78, by the way, refers to the 78th floor of the World Trade Center Tower 1, where he was at the time of the plane hitting it. He's also the host of Whispers and Bricks podcast and the creator of Whispers and Bricks Coaching Academy, focusing on middle management and executive life coaching. Who who was Ari Schonbrunn before the terrorist attack and who was he after? The role money played in his life, his upbringing, his relationship with God, balancing financial ambition with the more important pursuits in life. Is it possible? Do we have to have such dramatic experiences to rethink and redesign our lives? This and so much more in this powerful conversation with Ari Schonbrunn. Ari Schoenbrunn, welcome to Jewish Money Matters. It's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Al. I'm really, I'm, I'm truly honored to be a guest on your show, and I'm very excited about it. Yes, thank you. Honor is mine, and I can't wait to dive in. Ari, your story of survival of the 9-11 attacks is one which has touched many around the globe. You've written about your experience in your books, Miracle and Miracles and Fate on 78. You've spoken to countless audiences worldwide. Can we, I'd like for us to get started with you setting the stage for us and telling us briefly what, I mean, I don't know that you can say it briefly, but set the stage of us about what happened to you that day, along with perhaps a glimpse into those moments of divine intervention, those little miracles, those moments that you could undeniably see the hand of God in what was happening to you. Sure. Um, I'll try and, uh, you know, put a, uh, an, uh, a 45 minute story into 12 minutes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. 
So it was um, it was 20 to 7 in the morning. I had my briefcase over my shoulder. I had my cup of coffee in my hands. I yelled up to my wife, bye, hon, love you, see ya. I yelled up to my kids, bye, kids, have a great day in school. And I started to walk out the door. And then my wife yells down to me. She says to me, did you do Baruch's book order? Now, Baruch uh, was my third child, and he was eight years old at the time. And um, I learned something important that day. Uh, teachers have a wonderful way of torturing parents. It's called the scholastic book order. <laughs> By your smile and laughing, I guess you know all about this. There you go. So um, I said, no, I didn't. She says, you're not leaving the house until you do the book order. Now, I'm going to tell you right now that the book order was actually due on Monday. But my son left his pamphlet in school on Friday. And had he brought his pamphlet home on Friday, I would have done the book order with him on Sunday. And on Tuesday at 8 a.m., I would have been sitting at my desk and you would be interviewing somebody else right now because I'd be dead. But because he left his pamphlet in school on Friday, I'm here to tell you my story. Mm-hmm. Talk about the little miracles. Mm-hmm. All right. And and I didn't realize it, of course, until I got home that night and and, you know, we started to replay the whole thing. So I said, no, I didn't. She says, you're not leaving the house to do the book order. So I uh, put my briefcase down, put my cup of coffee down, walked into my kitchen, proceeded to negotiate with my eight-year-old for the next 20 20 minutes. I whittled him down to two books. I felt pretty good. Interestingly enough, the two books that he picked were from a series called Survivor. Wow. All right. I, I said, man, does God have a sense of humor or what? Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I put the uh, I put the uh, tear sheet into his knapsack, wrote out the check, picked up my briefcase, picked up my cold cup of coffee, and out the door I go. I get to the trade center at twenty minutes to nine. Normally, I was there at eight o'clock. Um, the uh, my office is on the hundred first floor. You couldn't take an elevator all the way up to one hundred one. You had to get an express elevator to 78 and then switch. 78 was a sky lobby and then you changed it on the sky lobby um, for the another elevator to get up to 101. So I was waiting downstairs and an elevator came all the way on the right side of the lobby. I ran down to the end of the lobby, got into the elevator, went up to 78. When I got off at 78, I realized that the elevator that I needed to get to my office was all the way on the left side of the sky lobby. So I got off the elevator, hung the left, started walking to that elevator when, as best as I can describe, it was, I, was about a, I was about eight feet from the bank of elevators that I needed to get to my uh, floor in 101 when, as best as I can describe, there was an explosion. I thought a bomb had gone off in the elevator. The entire building shook. The lights went out, the place filled with smoke, and I was literally thrown off my feet. There were people screaming, you know, fire in the elevator. And I'm thinking to myself, of course, there's a fire in the elevator. A bomb just went off in the elevator. That's what I thought. I didn't know. I'm looking around. I'm, I'm literally on the floor. I'm looking around. I see an emergency light uh, between two banks of elevators. I figured that's probably a good place to go. Um, and I literally crawled to that light because, you know, where there's a lot of smoke, you know, they teach it, stay low to the ground. Well, I'm glad I, I'm glad I was paying attention that day in school. So I see a door and I open it up. It was a security office. Mm-hmm. And I'll never forget. There was this woman security guard who was sitting on the floor with her back to the wall. And she was crying. Like she was crying her eyes out. 
And I leaned over to her and I said, ma'am, calm down. We're going to be okay. We're going to get out of here. And she calmed down a little bit. And then I went further into the office and I saw a guy who was the fire warden for the floor. Now, just for your audience's sake, the Trade Center had on every single floor, they designated as he was called the quote unquote fire warden. He was the go-to guy in case of an emergency. He had this silly red hat and it said fire warden on it. I knew that because I had the same silly red hat at my desk because I was the fire warden for my floor. So I ran over the guy. I said, what do we do? Where do we go? The guy looks at me and goes, I don't know. Of course he didn't know. We didn't know. We had no idea what had happened. I walk back outside to see if I can't find a way out. I bump into a coworker of mine. Her name was Virginia DiChiara. She was on the elevator that I was about to get on when that plane hit. And as she described the, the, as she described the incident to me, the walls of the elevator collapsed. The ceiling collapsed. There was a cable that snapped in the, in the uh, elevator. It was sparking. The jet fuel came down the sides of the elevator. Uh, there, it was ignited by the uh, sparks, and there was a wall of fire. The doors had started to close, and they jammed open about a foot, foot and a half. There were three people in the elevator, Roy Bell, Virginia, and Renee. Um, Renee and Virginia worked at, uh, with me. Roy Bell worked at a different company. Anyway, um, Roy Bell was the first one to jump through the fire. He suffered second-degree burns. Virginia jumped out right after him, and she suffered third-degree burns. And Renee ultimately died from her burns. All in a space of like six, eight, ten seconds. That was the difference between life and death that day, at least for these three people. Virginia looks at me. She says to me, Ari, thank God, please help me. And whatever you do, please don't leave me. Now, let me tell you something. She was a wreck. I mean, her clothes were burned. Her hair was singed. She was, she was a mess. And I looked at her and I said to Virginia, I promise I will not leave you and we will get out of here. Mm. Now, the irony about this was, she and I were not good friends. Um, she was an internal auditor who had been hired by Canada the year before. And uh, she almost got me fired. <laughs> so there was, there was history between you. <laughs> there was. There was. She almost got me fired. She didn't give me very good marks. And uh, we didn't like each other at all. And there we were. And, uh, you know, I keep thinking back on that scene. And, I mean, I, I did the right thing. Okay. I mean, I could have just, I could just bolted, you know, find my own way out and get out and, you know, the heck with you lady. But, you know, I, I we are, you know, we are a, a nation of Rahmanim b'nei Rahmanim. I don't know if your uh, audiences are, uh, um, you know, Jewish and Hebrew speaking and the like, but whatever, you know, we are, mer we are a merciful people and I was going to do whatever I could to make sure that we got out. Okay. Ultimately the uh, fire warden, uh, said, okay, we can get out stairwell on the left. We went to the, uh, we went to the stairwell, we found it and we started heading down. We got down about three flights when as best as I could describe the, one of the biggest miracles of the day happened to me other than the fact that I wasn't killed when the plane hit my cell phone rang. Mm. Now, most people look at me and they go, yeah, so what? But you know, I remember standing up against the window of my office going, can you hear me now? Can you hear me now? You know, you could never get reception in the World Trade Center. And especially on that day in the middle of the stairwell, I was so shocked. I picked up the phone. I went, hello? It was my wife on the other end of that phone. Yeah. 
Uh, you talk about the little miracles, right? And she started to cry and she was telling me something about a plane going into the building. I had no idea what she was talking about. I said to her, Joyce, I'm in a stairwell. I'm on the 75th floor. I'm on my way down. Now is not a good time. I said, I'll call you when I get out of the building. I hung up the phone. I didn't realize, of course, that it would be hours until I actually spoke to her again. Mm-hmm. So we continued on down. We got down to the 50th floor. She said, I can't do it. I can't go on. I said, yes, you can. You can do it. Because I knew if she, if we stopped she and she sat down, there was a good chance she wasn't going to get up and she was going to die. And that wasn't on my agenda for the day. So I said, no, Virginia, you can do this. And we gave her to drink and we poured water on her arms to give her relief from the burns. I started counting floors down. We hit the 38th floor backed up with people because the firefighters stopped the people from going down because they were coming up to put out the fire. They finally let us through. We got down. We got down to the first floor. And then, by the way, we got down to the eighth floor, actually, and there was water all over the place. I mean, ankle deep water. And I told Virginia, you know, just you got to take it real slow. She slips and falls. It's game over. Right. And um, and we continued down. We got down to the first floor and the fire ward. Remember, we, there was still the four of us. We were still walking. It was Roy Bell, Virginia, myself and the fire warden. And he continued and he was leading us and he, he just kept going down. I said, where are you going? He goes, we got to get out through the garage. I turned to Virginia. I said. You know, we got to go down another four. I said, what's another four or five uh, flights? We just came down 78, you know, so like what's another four or five? We we continued on down. We got down about two flights when all of a sudden the door on the first floor opens up and some guy yells out, where are you people going? I said, we're going out through the garage. He goes, no, no, you can't get out through the garage. You got to come back up here and come out through the first floor. Mm-hmm. I told this to Virginia that we had to go back up. She said a few things I can't say in mixed company. (laughs) And we went up and we got out through the first floor. Now, here's an interesting piece of information. I learned later there were people in that garage that never got out. Who was the guy who opened the door? I don't know. All I heard was a voice. But that voice saved our lives that day. So we got out. We... um, we had to walk through. There were police and firefighters telling us to walk through the mall, the atrium. I mean, it was just a long, long walk. We finally got out. I get out on Church Street. Cops are telling people uptown, uptown. People are running uptown. And I stopped the cop and I said, I got a burn victim here. Where do we go? What do we do? He says, go across the street in front of the Millennium Hotel. We're setting up a triage center there. And there'll be uh, an ambulance coming. Best place to be. I said, OK, great. We went across the street. Sure enough, an ambulance pulls up. and. I helped Virginia into the ambulance and I breathed a sigh of relief because I knew now, I mean, all this time I was just keeping her spirits up, you know, Uh, now she's finally getting medical attention. And I turned around, I got out of the ambulance, I turned around and I looked up, it was the first time I saw the buildings and I turned to a guy that was standing next to me. I said, how did building two get on fire? And he looked at me like I was crazy. And he said two jetliners went into the buildings. They're calling it a terrorist attack. I look at him like he's crazy. But what I realized afterwards was the only reason I didn't know about the second plane was I didn't hear it. Mm-hmm. And people look at me and go, what do you mean you didn't hear it? How can you not hear it? And I said, I was so focused on the task at hand. And I speak about this when I talk to my, uh, when I give my, my talks and I talk to my, uh, my clients. I said, focus is so important. I was so focused. 
focused on the task at hand that I had blocked everything else out. And I never heard that plane. I come back to the ambulance. They're not going anywhere. I realize I turned to the driver. I said, why aren't you leaving? He says, we can't leave until we fill the ambulance. We have to get, you know, we're looking to put in like six, seven, eight people into the ambulance. Mm -hmm. Virginia is writhing in pain. She's telling me, I am not going to make it. I said, Virginia, hold on. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. Finally, they fill the ambulance. The guy goes, okay, we're ready to roll. I breathe a sigh of relief because, you know, when she goes to the hospital, she's going to be okay. I'm going back to the building because I'm looking for my friends, my coworkers. Remember, there was, there was you know, 600 and some odd people up there. You know, I'm looking to help. Virginia turns to me and she says to me, Ari, you're coming with us. And I go, Virginia, you don't need me anymore. I'm going to get a hold of your mom. She's going to meet you at the hospital. You're going to be okay. She turns to the ambulance driver. She says, we're not leaving unless he comes with us. I look at the driver. He looks at me, you know, you know, and I see in his eyes, he's thinking, this is not a cab service. And I'm thinking, I don't need a cab, you know? Yeah. And um, I said, you know what? Maybe for her own psychological well-being, maybe I should just come. And he said, fine, hop into the front. And I got into the front of that ambulance and we pulled away. We're one of only a few ambulances that actually got away from the scene that day. When I tell my story, I ask my audience all the time, who saved whose life? Who saved whose life? If she wouldn't have insisted that I get into that ambulance, I would have been standing at the base of that building when it came down and I'd be dead, no doubt in my mind. But she insisted I go with her. We got to the we got to the uh, to the hospital and they started working on her. Then they threw me out because I wasn't a relative. Believe it or not, it, it shocked the heck out of me. They were worried about hospital protocol. Oh man! Anyway, um, and the the whole day. I mean, there was just a whole bunch of things going on throughout the course of the day, and I finally got home at five thirty in the afternoon. And there were 20 people in my living room and I had no less than 100 phone messages. And I learned something really important that day. You have no idea how many friends you really have until they all think you're dead. <laughs> Ouch. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's when they woke up. Um, that's my story at the 50,000 foot level. Um, if you want to hear me, you want to hear my whole story, you can do one of two things. You can buy my book, Miracles and Fate on 78. It's available on uh, Amazon, on my website, and believe it or not, in uh, Judaica Plus in Cedarhurst. <laughs> they're, the only one, they're the only ones carrying it. Really? Ari, yeah. I, have, I have so many questions because you go through this experience and I, I read somewhere, I think it was your website where you write that up until that point, up until nine 11, you were settling for second best. Um, there was also a headline written about you from greed to God. What, what change, who was Ari up to up until nine 11 and who did he become after and How did this manifest in his behavior? Great question. I'm glad you asked me that question. Um, I was always, from the time I was very young, my first job, et cetera, I was always uh, focused on the money aspect. Mm. And, you know, all I wanted to do, and I think a lot of people, I guess, are like this. The money was first and foremost. My job was first and foremost. 
Okay. My, my family was, was secondary. You know, I was just, just looking at the money. Um, and, you know, I worked with people that were multimillionaires and yet were in the office at 6.37 a.m. And why? What did they, why? And I realized, you know what it was about? It was about a bigger boat, a bigger car, nice vacation, next vacation, next promotion. You know, this is what, this is what life was all about. And I was guilty of the exact same thing yeah. until that day. You know, when I realized that I almost lost my life, which meant that my family was going to lose me, I took a good hard look at my life. And I realized that God plucked me out of a collapsing, burning building and gave me a second chance. And I took that to heart. And I said, you know what? I am going to change. The money is not going to be first and foremost. It's going to be the family. You know, um, my kids are going to be the most important thing. I remember my kids used to say to me, Daddy, can you come on a class trip or go into the zoo? And I was like, no, Daddy's got to work. Daddy, can you come to the class play? I have the lead role. No, Daddy's got to work. Mm-hmm. Daddy, can you come to mock trial? It's after school, so it's afterwards. So you could be there, right? No, Daddy's got to work late. Daddy's got to work. Daddy's got to. That was always the refrain mm-hmm. until that day. And today... Dad is on the class trips. Dad is on the school plays. Daddy is wherever his children and now grandchildren need him to be because that is what is important in life. Everything else is secondary. And I love how you describe that. And I'm hearing you say this and I'm, and I, and I'm thinking, you know, we don't always do it consciously because there is a part that says, well, I'm doing this for the family, right? Daddy's got to work because it's for my family, right? So it could get... This ambition could get disguised as my family comes first. My family, mm-hmm. I do all of this for the family. It's, it's my love for the family. And yet, and yet it isn't, right? And yet there's that realization that we've gone, we've take, we've gone overboard on, on some level. Uh, that you're 100% right. All right. We live in a society today that is, has, has, more material things than ever in the history of the world. Okay. We have, our lives are so much better than ever before, you know? And if you think about it, you know, 200 years ago, all right. A King doesn't live as well as we do. You know why? He didn't even have, they didn't have bathrooms. They had outhouses. Okay. They didn't have running water. Okay. We are in so much. And we're, we're at the stage and, and I'm very fearful. Okay. I'm very, very fearful because people are, are, are not looking at the future. Mm. Okay. What do, um, what do I mean? I mean, we are, we're all, we all dive in every day mm-hmm. and we all say, you know, I'm waiting for Mashiach. I'm waiting for Mashiach. I'm waiting for Mashiach. All right. I want somebody to show me. How they're doing that exactly. How are you waiting for Mashiach? All right. We always say it every day, but how many people really mean it? You know, I always say, I always tell a joke. It's not, not so much of a joke, but I say when Mashiach comes, okay, it, and certainly it, it'll probably happen in America. When Mashiach comes, he's all right, everybody, we're going to Israel. You'll see guys going like, you know, I'll send you a check. Yeah. Okay. 
when they're going to want to build the base amigdash, the third base amigdash, you know what's going to happen? They're going to say, okay, um, what would you pay for the naming of the building? Oh my God, a billion dollars, you know? You're going to have people square, you know, because that's what they're going to care about, you know? And, And I say, you, you're just so focused on the wrong things. Do we have to make a living? Yes, we do. Mm-hmm. Okay. But there are limits. Mm-hmm. There are limits. And you've got to understand limits. You've got to understand that, you know, your family comes first. Your family comes first. Yeah. So I'm glad you said that, that, that we have to make a living because I could just hear some somebody being a little cynical on the audience and saying, well, that's easy for somebody coming out of Wall Street to say, right, that, you know, but I, a person like myself, you know, I have to still work. And, you know, even if it's a job that sucks the life out of me and, you know, I don't, you know, I I don't know how to, how to, how to really model this. What do we answer to those people? And maybe even like, as a coach, I know you coach so many people now, like, what are some practical tips to help us really solidify this right really not give it lip service but actually put it in practice that we are actually thriving we're not just surviving we're not just here in this world making a living we're doing so much more we're changing the world we're creating that impact we're bringing mashiach as you said what could we be doing practically speaking well practically speaking i always tell people that you know you have to learn to compartmentalize mm-hmm. That is, that is like first and foremost. I'm hearing my mother, Ari. That was like her phrase. <laughs> that was her phrase. You have to learn to compartmentalize. Really? Wow. Yeah. Okay. So you mean I didn't invent that? No, you didn't. <laughs> I'll put you in touch with mom. <laughs> there you go. No, but it's really, really true. You know, I, I know so many people when they're at work, they think they should be home. When they're at home, they think they should be at the beach. When they're at the beach, they think they should be, you know, at the ballpark. When they're at the ballpark, they're always thinking I, I should be somewhere else. Yes. You know something? You are where you are because that's where God wants you to be. Okay. So stop thinking that I should be there. I, you know, I'm here. I should be there. Stop thinking about it. Compartmentalize when you're at work, you're at work fully focused, nothing else. Okay. When you're at home, your family, nothing else should get in the way of that. All right. And each, whatever uh, state you're in, whatever matzah that you're in, okay, that's where you should be. And that's where you should focus. All right. And, and, and I want to bring back to that focus. All right. Nothing happens without focus. Mm. Nothing. Nothing happens without focus, all right? If you're not focused, I don't care what it is you're doing, it's not going to happen, all right? And I try and instill this into my clients, and I say, you know, just you need to, whatever the task is, and it doesn't matter if you're, if you're you know, if you're writing reports, if you're doing uh, spreadsheets, if you're, whatever it is, just be focused, and once the task is over, move on. Now you focus on something else. Right. That is that that is crucial. The other thing that I talk about is teamwork. Mm-hmm. All right, teamwork is so important. I can't tell you. Um, the I I used to uh, I managed I, I mean I managed a lot of people, and uh, in one of my old offices, our our um, CIO. And the head of desktop 
didn't like each other. Mm -hmm. As a matter of fact, they hated each other. All right. But they kind of both reported into me. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, every time I, I needed something done, I wanted something done. Nothing was getting done because these two guys weren't talking to each other. They didn't like each other. They didn't trust each other, whatever. And I sat each of them down separately. Mm-hmm. Okay. And I explained to them, you know, you be the bigger person. Okay. You, we have a job to do. I know you don't like him. All right. But we still have a job to do. And I'm asking you. As your manager, I'm asking you, do me a favor, okay? And I was always doing this. This is always a favor to me. Mm-hmm. Do me a favor, okay? Just work with him. I'll make it worth your while at the end of the day in some way, shape, or form, whatever. But we need to get this job done. And I need the two of you to be talking. And I would tell each of them the same thing. And ultimately, you know, they still didn't like each other. But at least they were working together and we were getting things done. Mm-hmm. You know, people always ask me, how do you how do you get so much done? And I say, you know what? I talk to people. I treat people like human beings. I don't fly off the handle. If somebody makes a mistake, they're not afraid to come and talk to me about the mistake mm-hmm. because they know I'm not going to go. I'm not going to go off on them because mm-hmm. I won't. All right. People make mistakes. Now, if it happens, you know, time after time, then they'll ultimately get fired. But at the end of the day, you know, they 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 don't fear me. Mm-hmm. They love me. All right. And you want to be a good boss. All right. Make sure they love you, not fear you. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of what you're saying that this last point of yours is you know, getting, getting your ego out of the way oftentimes, right. And, and, and being like you said, that the bigger person, right. Right. You know, kind of like stepping that, that place of, well, it's all about me and me. Well, there's something to be done, right. There's something, there's a mission that we're here all to achieve and let's set aside our personal kind of like, I guess our ego, that would be the word. Correct. Right. 100%. For the sake of the better, the bigger picture, what needs to get done? You also said something very interesting. You said that God wants you to be in that place, wherever you are. Right? We're talking about focus. That's where you need to be. And I and I and I want you to perhaps delve into that a little bit more because bringing God into the picture very often doesn't happen, and you've alluded to it. And I guess maybe my question is: Can somebody gain this perspective and these skills? If they don't believe that there's a, something higher than them that wants them to be here, that wants them to succeed, that wants them to thrive, and they allow that to have that in their lives, can we do all this without God in our lives? Okay. So I come across all kinds of people, you know, um, religious people, you know, uh, whatever the religion is, right. I come across atheists, I come across all, all the spectrum, okay, whether it's Muslim, Christian, Jew, whether it's, you know, uh, uh, Orthodox, conservative, reform, whatever it is, okay. Um, at the end of the day, somebody once said to me, oh, um, it was, oh, right. There was a, there was there was an old man who was dying and he was a complete atheist and he wanted to be cremated. And, you know, the question I asked was, um, you know, do you believe in God? And he goes, no, absolutely not. 
I said, that must be so difficult. And he said, why? I said, because what happens to you after you die? He goes, nothing. I don't know. I said, so you're going to spend, you know, 80 years or 90 years on this earth, okay, doing whatever it is that you're doing and with no consequence, with no, with, with nothing. I mean, that has to be the saddest thing I've ever heard, that you're going to spend 90 years doing, I don't know what, and, and with, for what purpose? Mm-hmm. You have to have a purpose. People can't survive without a purpose. All right. You go crazy. If you don't have a purpose, you go crazy. So I think that at the end of the day, more people than not do believe in God or a higher power. Okay. okay? And they call it different things. You know, they, whether they call it Allah, whether they call it, uh, you know, God, whether they talk, you know, whatever it is, whatever they call it. Right. It is a form of a higher being. Right. Um, and when I talk about, you know, you are where you are because that's that is where God wants you to be. All right. Speci- I'll, I'll give you specifics, which, you know, people are going to hate me for this, but I don't really care. Um, <laughs> that's that's a new Ari, right? That's Ari post nine eleven. <laughs> that is Ari post nine eleven. I don't care. You know, and that is it is true. By the way, you know. When when people come to me, oh, do you know what he thinks of me? Do you know what he said to me? I go, yes. Yeah, so what happened? And, and then what? You know, oh my, oh, I made you cry. Why? You know, stand up, move on. You know, perspective. Yeah, a hundred percent. And when you talk about perspective, so you know, there were people that were in the trade center that day that never should have been there. And there were people that should have been there that weren't there. Okay. And only God can do that. You know, I, I tell people, you know, 9-11, all right, we, there were, you know, close to 3,000 people that died. Or I, well, they call it died. I call it murdered. Right. All right. There were 3,000, close to 3,000 people that were murdered on that day. Um, and. Like I said, there were some people that should have been there and so, that weren't, some people that, that were there that shouldn't have been. But who could organize that? Some people say to me, yeah, but where was God? Yeah, he saved you, but where was God for the other, the other 10,000 people yeah. or the other 3,000 people? And I say to them, do you understand that every day on this planet, 10,000 people die every single day? Sometimes it's natural causes, sometimes get hit by a bus, sometimes it doesn't matter. Now, for whatever reason, these people that were murdered, okay, it was their time. And that's why even though they weren't supposed to be there, they actually were. God is like God is like a supercomputer, you know, where only he could arrange it so that all of these people should be there at the same time. Mm-hmm. All right. And and that's why I say you are where you are because that's what God wants you to be. All right. He wanted me to, to go to that hospital so that I should my life should be saved. All right. I mean, just there are so many different stories like that. There were actually I have a bunch of stories like that in my book as well. But you know, so 
and therefore and therefore make the most of it, right? I mean, a hundred percent. You know what? I you know people ask me, did you become more religious mm-hmm. after nine eleven? And I used to say no, because I was the same guy on Wednesday that I was on Tuesday, minus six hundred and fifty eight friends and coworkers who were killed. Um, but as time went on, I started to tell my story more and more. All right, and realized the magnitude of, of what had happened and, ha- and how I was saved, you know, I did become more religious, mm-hmm. all right? My davening was, was, was different, you know? I set aside more time to learn. You know, my whole life changed, all right? So, um, but I tell people, you don't have to go through what I went through in order to make that change. I talk about change all the time, you so know? We live in it. We live in a ridiculous world today. All right. And we have the power to change the world. All right. But it starts with you mm-hmm. right there, right in that heart. That's where it starts. You got to take care of, you know, you becoming a better person and then transferring that to other people. Are you looking for a career path that is flexible, satisfying, and well-paying? Do you have a knack for psychology, you're good with words, and you're fearless when it comes to tech? Digital marketing sounds cool? It is. And guess what? You can learn to build a digital marketing career without studying for four years, compromising on your values, or working for peanuts. Odeo Academy is the professional and comprehensive way for uber-smart creative women to move into the fun, fulfilling, and lucrative industry of digital marketing without going to college, drowning in debt, or leaving your home. Check it out at odeoacademy.com forward slash JLP, and be sure to use the code JLP at checkout to claim $100 off. But hurry, the next cohort at Odeo Academy starts November 6th. Odeo is O-D-E-O. Head over to odeoacademy.com forward slash JLP and enter the code JLP at checkout to receive $100 off your enrollment. take us a little bit back to your upbringing because you mentioned earlier in this conversation that to you it was all about the money right you probably were just this kid you know who then went and got a job in investment banking and did all the things many of us did that by the way (laughs) myself included tell us a little bit about your upbringing around money what were some of the lessons what did you see and learn growing up and perhaps there were things that served you and perhaps there were things that you had to overcome shed some light on your upbringing sure Sure. I I don't think I've ever been asked that question before. I grew up in a middle-class home, you know, an Orthodox home. We went to Hebrew day schools. I mean, I'm a little bit older than you, I think. We went to, you know, Hebrew day schools. My, My dad, as far back as I can remember, always worked for himself. And my family made Aliyah in 1971. Um, I went to high school and college there. One of the things that really shaped me was the fact that my father worked for himself and he did very, very well. Mm-hmm. All right. He, we, we, we would actually, I would actually say we were like upper middle class. Mm-hmm. 
And I always wanted to be like him. He was my role model. And, you know, he, everything he did was, I mean, I was just, I was in such awe of him. What were his businesses? What was he involved in? Oh, he was, he was what they called an insurance public adjuster where he actually worked for the insurance companies but they, in other words, they were his clients yeah, 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 yeah. and he did very, very well. He did very, very well. When we made Aliyah, uh, I'll never forget, um, his accountant turned to him and said to him, Dave, why are you leaving? You have this great business going. Where are you going? <laughs> you know, and uh, he said, well, my wife wants to go and uh, we're going. So when we went to Israel, he went into different businesses. He was in the import-export business. He was always, like I said, he was always working for himself. And he was traveling back and forth to the States because he still had his own business. Uh, he took on a partner. And ultimately, the partner drove the business into the ground. Mm-hmm. And so he went, he went back and he contacted some of his clients. And there was a major, major insurance company that wanted to hire him. And they were going to pay him a lot of money back Mm -hmm. in the 70s, but he was going to have to spend six months a year in the States. Okay. Now I was 14 years old. Okay. My younger brother was, was 12. My older brother was uh, 17, whatever, you know, my sister was 20 something. And we actually sat down, had a family meeting and it was decided that it's not worth it. It's not worth it. And that insurance company went out of business like two years later. Uh-huh. So coming full circle. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. the story relates to everything we started talking about. That's incredible. Right. Family first. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I was always I, I was always wanted I always wanted to be my own boss. I always wanted to work for myself. Um, I did I owned a couple of businesses when I was younger. Uh, in my 20s. And ultimately, I wound up on Wall Street. Mm-hmm. And I mean, like the rest is really history, right. you know. And so, so that kind of shaped it for me. You know, I was like I said, I, I don't think I ever not that I needed to live up to my father's uh, like I needed his approval or anything like that. But deep down, I felt that I did, mm-hmm. you know, and um, ultimately, and it lasted a long time. I'm not going to, I'm not going to pull any punches here. It lasted a long time and it changed. It really changed uh, 9-11. You, you ended up leaving Wall Street pretty soon after 9-11. No, 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 no. Um, I left Wall Street five years ago. Oh, so you did stay. Oh, this I, is an interesting point. I thought you'd left three years after. So, mm-hmm. so, so then, then this really highlights a really important point, which is we can still stay in it. We can still stay in the business world and even in the, in, in the world of Wall Street, let's say as a, you know, the epitome of materialism and greed and all that and still be above it and still be that higher person. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And it's funny because whenever we had like, um, especially if they were uh, Jewish and especially if they were from, uh, when we had like interns coming in or new employees coming in, whatever. Um, first of all, they all gravitated towards me because I always wore my yarmulke. 
Mm-hmm. All right. I was one of those guys. There wasn't another. It, it was funny because the, the firm that I worked in had less than 10 Orthodox Jews. Wow, really? In a company that whose headquarters had 960 people. Mm-hmm. I don't know why or how or what. But anyway, but I always wore my yarmulke. I was the only one. And, you know, people would come up to me and say to me, you know, I'm Jewish, too. Right. You know, as, and I would and I would explain to them, you know, don't make the mistake because I believe it was a mistake. I said, don't make the mistake that I made. All right. And that is, you know, make sure that this doesn't become your life. Because if, if you, you as a, an ex Wall Street person, you probably know that the rate of uh, the rate of uh, divorce on Wall Street is tremendously high. Mm-hmm. It's tremendously high because of the stuff they have to do and the hours that they have to keep, et cetera, and so forth. So, you know, and I warned them. I said, "You're young, okay? Just take my advice, okay? Look at life. Look at where you are." Look at where you want to be, okay, and figure it out. But don't, this should not be a 24-7. Because let me tell you, as you know, investment banking, that's 24-7. It is. It really is. And I don't, you know what, I don't think a a firm person should be in investment banking. Mm -hmm. I think it's, I think it's, you know, I don't want to say that it's against our religion, but it's, it, it puts Damn us in a close. challenging position. Yes. yes right. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, right. It's a big stumbling block, let's just say. <laughs> True. True. But on the other hand, we do know that we Judaism gives us those tools to stay above it and really, you know, pursue the, the pursue the the materialist and the materialistic pursuit can be can be done, but on a much higher level with an elevated perspective, meaning kept um, within perspective. Right, right. Yeah. And the other thing that's really, really important is charity. Yeah. Charity. You know, we had a guy who worked for us who um, one year um, he gave $100,000 to an organization. Okay. Okay. And um, my boss, and he was in our group, Mm -hmm. right? My boss calls me over because I was like on the admin side at this point. He calls me up and he come, he's coming to my office and he said, I want you to find out if this is legit. I go, what is it? He goes, this guy's getting like a, a million dollar bonus. And he wants to give $100,000 to this organization, whatever. I want to make sure they're not drug dealers, they're not smugglers, they're not this, they're not that. I said, Okay, I'll check it out. It turns out the guy was a from guy. It also turns out he was giving it to one of the uh, rabbinic dynasties. Mm-hmm. You know, so I laughed, you know, and I went back to my boss, who was an Irish Catholic. And I said, this is 100% legit, whatever. This is and, pretty kosher. <laughs> yeah. So, but what I, what I was thinking to myself at the time was, wow, you know, my hat's off to this guy. I mean... Yeah, he made a million dollars, but he gave away a hundred thousand dollars, which is ten percent. So he tithe, which is fine, right? That's but what how many required to do? <laughs> but yeah, but how many people mm-hmm. would would give a hundred thousand dollars to charity? Right, 
And you know what I heard somebody said one time, and I always talk about this on the show. I heard a philanthropist say, you know what? Somebody asked them, like, how did you come to this point where you gave a million dollars or whatever amount it was? Right. Really powerful. He says, I want you to know that you don't come to become a giver of a million dollars if you haven't given the first 10, the first hundred, the first thousand, the first hundred thousand. That's that's how you build up to that. Wow. You've never been giving your 10%. You don't be just overnight become that guy who gives a hundred thousand dollars out of his million dollar bonus. That's that's awesome. Mm-hmm. I gotta write that down. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Ari, this has been amazing. Why don't you tell us a little bit about your your podcast, Whispers and Bricks? And obviously you also coach, and I think that's Whispers and Bricks Academy. Tell us a little bit about those projects. Okay, so Whispers and Bricks. Um, my main business was, uh, public speaking. Mm-hmm. I was a motivational speaker and I became a motivational speaker, obviously after nine 11 and it happened by accident, by the way, accident. that's another, yeah, but that's another story. We'll leave that for another episode. And mm-hmm. after I left wall street and then it was going even better, right. Cause I had more time to devote to it, et cetera. And then the pandemic hit mm-hmm. and my, and my business went to zero. Right. Because there's no more conferences. There's no more live events. There's nothing. My business went to zero. And I go like, I got to do something else. Right. And I was approached by a woman who I had met a, a few years before that. She was a survivor of the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm-hmm. And she lost the leg. She was she wasn't a runner. She was she was in the audience, you know, spectator. And she happened to be standing six feet from the garbage can that blew up. Anyway, she has an amazing story. and. We met, we talked, and then a while later, she calls me up and she says to me, I just started a podcast and I'd love to interview you. Can we do that? I went, sure. And we did it. And then she said to me, you know, you should do your own podcast because you have a great story. And I said, I don't know anything about podcasts. She gets me in touch with this woman who helps me out. The next thing you know, Ari Sherman has a podcast. Why Whispers and Bricks? Do you have any idea? Tell us. Okay. Um uh, most a lot of the times when I finish my my talk, I end with a short story. It's about a young executive climbing the ladder of success. Um, but the moral of that story was that you can listen to the whispers, or you can wait for the brick. Mm-hmm. Hence, whispers and bricks. Mm-hmm. All right, so that's why. And then, of course, I just carried along as to whispers and bricks academy. That's my coaching business. Um, so that's why that's why I did those two things. Beautiful. And that, is that only for business people, the coaching? No, no, it's, uh, it's life coaching. Right. Um, I've got, you know, I, I've got, I started out really with, um, with like Wall Street people. Mm-hmm. Cause that, cause that was my, I, you know, I, I knew that. Yeah. Right. Um, and then after that, it just started to, um, you know, expand into all walks of life. Awesome. Awesome. All right. I always wrap it up with what I like to call Jewish money matters fill in the blanks. And we'll do these really quickly because we're short on time. And this is where the part of the show where you'll, I'll give you an open ended sentence and you'll finish it with the first thing that comes to mind. All right. Oh no. Yes, you can do it. Focus. <laughs> yeah, you don't even have to focus too much. Just whatever yeah. is from your heart. All right. Number one is when I give my sir or tzedakah, I like to give two. Tom Cheshabbos. Mm. Aisha Torah are the, are the two most popular ones that I give to um, uh, Tom Cheshavis because I got involved with Tom Cheshavis in the 5,000 Rockaway uh, 30 years ago mm-hmm. um, 
we actually, there were actually four of us who, who took it over from the guy who actually started it. And he didn't have time to run it anymore. And we started from, you know, a chicken and two chalas to 27 families to now servicing, um, you know, 400 families. Wow. And uh, yeah, it was amazing. So that's, that's one of my babies. And Aisha Torah was because of a friend of mine who worked for Aisha Torah and uh, heard me speak, asked me to come speak for, you know, for his group in Aisha Torah. And that opened up a whole new world for me. Mm-hmm. And so those are the, those are the two big ones that I, uh, that I give to. Very nice. My next one, I never had second thoughts about asking it until today, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I'd love to make more money because. Yeah, you see why I was yeah. having a second thought? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to make more money um, because, and I hope you're sitting down for this one, mm-hmm. because it would just allow me to give more tzedakah. Yeah. That's, that, that's, the, that's the only reason. I mean, everything else... Look, Baruch Hashem, four out of five of my kids are married. They're all doing fine. Baruch Hashem, poo, poo, poo. You know, my youngest is in, is in Israel right now. He's in Tomo. Uh, he just graduated high school. He was a late in life baby, but that's for another episode. Um, I know I got a lot of episodes in me. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so I know that they're taken care of and I know that you know, if I could, I, I'm always, I'm always jealous. Oh, all right? about I'm what? always, I'm jealous of people who can afford to give the kind of money that they give. Cause I know I can't, I'm limited. Jealousy. And, and I'm ju- and I say, you know what, if God would only, you know, if I could only, if I could only make more money, how much more money can I give away? Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. what I'm always thinking about. How much more money can I give away? Mm-hmm. Can I tell you a trick we do, my husband and I? We sit, we sit at the end of Elo before Rosh Hashanah and we say, how much sadaka do we want to give? What is that number that we're telling God this is what we're committing to? This is what we're giving. Because then he has to give us in kind. Because now, uh, now we made a deal. Because it's all for you, right? <laughs> so you got to give me that very good. 90%, right? At least. Very good. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Something I wish I'd learned about money growing up is How evil it could be. Mm. Do you think it, it is it the money or is it how we relate with it? Okay. It is, yes, you can do a lot of good with it. Right. But unfortunately, there is more evil being done with money than there is good. Right. And it's sad. Right, but it's it's us. It's us, the one who wants a hundred, who wants two hundred. It's, it's on on us. The, the the onus is on us. You know, yes and no. I think mm-hmm. I think, you know, when when um, when God commanded Moshe to command the people to give the machzis hashechel, yeah, and and he couldn't understand what it looked like, so God God showed him a machzis hashechel of fire. Mm-hmm. The question is why? Why fire? Could have just showed him a coin. Why fire? What he was telling us is fire, all right, has 
a good quality. It gives us heat. It gives us, you know, it allows us to cook, et cetera, and so forth. And yet fire can also be very destructive, can destroy. All right. So God wanted us to know that money, you can either do good with it or you can do bad with it. But I feel that, you know, when you, when you're around it, when you have it or don't have it, but you're around it, you know, it, it takes on a life of its own. Yeah. That's my feeling. You say, no, that's, that's us. But I don't, I don't think it's us. It's, you know what? It's like a, um, it's like a, 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 a drug addict. Yeah. Okay. When he gets in initially, yeah, it's him, right? He joins, he smokes a joint, whatever. But as he becomes an addict, it's not him anymore. Yeah. It's the, it's the drugs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Money is a drug. I hear you. I hear you. And with that, money, spiritual or physical? <laughs> <laughs> Which one is it? What do you think? Is it both is, or one or the other? Is money spiritual or physical? Mm-hmm. I never thought of it. Um I'm telling you, Ari, we got to do two, part two, part three, part four. <laughs> no joke. No joke. Um, I would say it's probably both. Mm-hmm. It's something, probably both. Something I splurge on unapologetically is? I don't. No. I don't splurge. I don't splurge. on The only thing. All right. Ari, take a step back. Okay. <laughs> And I'm going to say this because, and the only reason I had to take a step back to do it is because I didn't think of it because I haven't done it in five years. Um, playing golf. Oh. <laughs> playing. What I mean is my wife, when I turned 40, after I busted up my knee and couldn't play basketball anymore, she gave me five golf lessons as a birthday present. Uh-huh. And I was hooked. Uh-huh. I got hooked on the game. And so I went out and I bought golf clubs and, you know, a bag and, you know, and, and I, and I played a lot. And especially when you're on wall street, that was one of the other reasons why I wanted to play was because, you know, if you play golf, you, you're in, right. It's just, it just is. The club. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, and it was the only thing that you can tell your boss where you can take a day off. All right. You know, that where they'll, actually support you taking the day off. Uh, you know, boss, I got to take out the client XYZ. We're going to play golf. Oh, you're going to play golf? Uh, here, give them a dozen give them a dozen balls and, and give them gloves and give them this and give them that girl. And go, 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 go. You know, and imagine if I wanted to say to my boss, listen, boss, I, I, I need to take the day off because I'm going with XYZ to the beach. <laughs> uh, I'm no, you're not. Puerto Rico. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. No, you're not. You know, so um, I played up until uh, up until five years ago, five years ago, I stopped playing. I left wall street. So I was busy building my business and doing it. So I left golf totally behind. Mm. And now, cause it was, I'll tell you, it was a Taiva. It really was for me. It was a Taiva. I, I played every possible moment that I could. I used to get up. I used to play with a friend of mine every Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. And, um, I would get up in the summertime. I would get up at like four 30 in the morning. I would dive in Nates. I dive in Vasekin. I did not even Nates. I dive in Vasekin. All right. Cause I never did anything before I dive in. 
no matter what it was, I never did anything before I died. I always died first and everything else comes later. And by 6 a.m., my friend and I were out on the golf course. You know, we played nine holes. So I was home by 930 and then I had the rest of the day. Mm-hmm. You know, so my wife didn't care because I was home when I needed to be. Right. She's- All right. There you go. And as we talked about, you know, where are you? When, how do you compartmentalize? Well, you know what? You make it work. Yeah. Yeah. Now, Today, I'm most grateful for my children and grandchildren. They are just they are just so amazing. They really are. When I when I think about my kids, I say I am the luckiest man on the face of the earth. Beautiful. And finally, I'm Ari Schoenbrunn, and I believe Jewish money matters because Jewish money matters. You're talking about the podcast. What? Yes, the, the podcast is very important in people's lives. Yes, <laughs> Jewish money matters. You can interpret it as whatever you want. Jewish money matters because you can do so much good with it, yes. but you have to focus on doing the good. Yes, don't 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 get sucked in. Mm-hmm. Spoken by the only Ari Schoenbrunn. Thank you so much. Ari, where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? Oh, I have two websites. Mm-hmm. Ari at AriSchoenbrunn.com mm-hmm. and WhispersAndBricks.com. Whispers and Bricks are all about my podcast. And Ari at Ari Schoenbrunn is all about my speaking business and my coaching business. Excellent. We'll be sure to put that in the show notes and go Follow you there. Anybody who wants to hear more should definitely subscribe to your podcast. Very highly rated on iTunes. Congratulations. Oh, by the way, you can catch me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, although I don't really tweet and I don't do Instagram, but Facebook and and LinkedIn, you can catch me. Excellent. We'll all connect with you there. Ari, thank Thank you so much. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on as a guest. It was a lot of fun. It was great. You're a terrific hostess. And, you know, let's do this again sometime in the future. I would love it. And perhaps I can get you on my podcast. I would love to. Of course. We'll make it happen. We'll make it happen. Ari, thank you so much. Seriously. Let's be in touch and let's make that happen. Okay? Great. Thank you so much, Ari. All right. Take care. Take care. Bye. Bye. Thanks to Ari Schoenbrunn for stopping by. You can find him at AriSchoenbrunn.com or on LinkedIn and Facebook at Ari Schoenbrunn. You can also check out his podcast, Whispers and Bricks, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening to this podcast. And speaking of podcasts, be sure to leave a review and rating. Huge thanks to everyone who's taken a minute to do that. I will continue to pick a reviewer of the week every Friday and gift you a 20-minute money session with me. All you have to do is scroll down the ratings and review section uh, on Apple Podcasts. Once you're in the Apple Podcast page for the show, you just scroll down to ratings and review. You'll see it there. You'll leave a review. Chances are you will get picked and, well, you'll be helping out the show a lot. As always, I will be taking your questions this Friday, so send them in via email, yael at yaeltrush.com, DM on Instagram at yaeltrush, or you can WhatsApp the number 832-317-6778. I will see you here Friday. Have a great week.